Let's pray together. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you have intervened into humanity. You have stepped in while we were far off. You have made us alive while we were dead. You have freed us when we were slaves. And you have brought us into your family, adopted us as children and made us heirs of your eternal promise. Today we pray this morning, open our eyes that we might see with fresh eyes the blessings we have in Christ, the love and peace we have with you and the love and peace we have with each other. Amen. Memories of my teenage years are punctuated with episodes of my younger brother singing, or or should I say yelling, Jimmy Barnes songs at the top of his voice. Um, I can remember, you know, running to the station with him late for school and he's there panting along, the last train out of Pimble's almost gone, and we sort of run along together. these, These songs grew on me over time, but the problem was I only ever really learnt the title of the song or or the one line that he would sing over and over again. Um, So, standing on the outside, looking in, and then standing on the outside, looking in, standing on the outside, looking in. I I would wonder what came after that. Um, It took me a long time to realise how powerful a song this is and, and many of Jimmy Barnes's songs. I looked up the lyrics this week because that title came back to me as I was preparing this passage. And looking at the words, I realised what the song is really about. It's about a working class person who is staring into the rich, elite, privileged circles and realises that he'll always be standing on the outside looking in. And so one of the lines goes uh, like this, there's the room full of money and the born to win, no amount of work's going to get me through the door. And he realises that hopeless feeling of being on the outside and he'll never be accepted, he'll never make it on the in. It's a powerful song because it taps into something that really is universal through human history and culture. Wherever you find humans who are on the in, they often do work to keep other people on the out. It's true in the playground, it's true in world politics. It's the instinct that kicks in to keep others on the outside. And maybe you've sensed it or felt something like this, looking at the uber-wealthy and thinking, well, I'll never be like them. Or maybe it's the social group or the cool mums at school or membership at the SCG or that in-circle here, maybe at church. What is it that you've experienced when you've felt on the outside looking in? And when I was in year 10 at school, I had a group of five friends, plus me, there were six of us. And of course, in our year 10 brains, we assumed everyone wanted to be in our group And so we came up with a name for our group. Our name was SANE, S-A-N-E. It stood for six and no one else. We didn't want anyone else in our group. Now, that was my year 10 brain. I I can say I dropped it by about eight years after high school. Um, um, But, you know, I don't want to trivialise this feeling because we know through history books that the history stories are filled with the darkest expressions of this awful experience We can bring to mind people born into poverty, hopeless poverty, and there really is no way that they can work their way socially up. We might think of minority races living within much bigger communities, always on the edge and outside of education or health care or job opportunities. 
We might think of indigenous children growing up on the outside of their very own homeland, spending their lives, these people knowing they're on the outside and they can never penetrate into the privileged groups. And we see it in the story of the Bible as well. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the most privileged race to ever walk the human earth. It's Israel and the story of Israel who were chosen by God, therefore leaving, by definition, all the other nations on the outside looking in, on the outside of God's promises. To be born a Jew puts you immediately into this most privileged group, born into the covenant people of God, The one living God was your God. You had the temple, you had the law, you had the promises, you had access to God and you stood to inherit the rich promises of God. And if you were born a non-Jew, well, you grew up knowing that you were destined to always remain standing on the outside looking in. Or were you? Here in our passage this morning, it's a bit of a bulky passage, there's a lot of ideas in here, but the one thread that goes all the way through is the idea of how God has worked through history to bring non-Jews in. It was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's not made clear until you meet the cross of Christ. And so the outlines you have there trace through the logic of the passage. There's uh, the end of chapter 2 that we need to deal with from last week. This is all about how the non-Jews are brought in. How does that happen? Then Paul talks about his own ministry in chapter 3. What's his task? His task is to preach the gospel to non-Jews and bring them in. And then we see how God views the church and the role of the church in displaying this wonderful wisdom, this wonderful plan to the watching world and even the unseen spiritual world. So let's start off with chapter 2, verses 11 down to the end of the chapter, down to 22. This is how God brings these non-Jews into the kingdom of God. We're in, um, this is a letter Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And so you need to imagine quite a multicultural church. There are Roman Christians, Greek Christians, probably African Christians, Christians from Asia Minor, and they're all sitting there in church on this Sunday morning. The letter's being read out. And then Paul addresses them specifically. leaves the Jewish Christians to one side for a moment. This is just to the non-Jewish Christians. There in verse 12. Um, Therefore, sorry, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that's done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that... At that time, you were separate from Christ. And then there's a series of six ways to emphasize just how far out they were. Separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. What an awful and hopeless situation it is completely cut off from anything good and unable to do anything about it, standing on the outside, looking in perhaps or just looking around, but definitely on the outside. Now, I'm not Jewish. I think many people here are not Jewish. So here are words written to us as well. You, me, were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the promise without God in the world. And then the miracle It's there in verse 13. Here's the miracle. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
Those who were once far away have been brought near. It's a very similar passage to the passage of last week. Those who are spiritually dead have been made alive. Well, here it's those who are far off have been brought near. The missing part of the puzzle from last week is there at the end of verse 13. It's the last little phrase that comes after it. And here we learn how those who are far off are brought near. It's through the blood of Christ. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, the blood of Christ, it's shorthand for the death of Jesus and everything that God achieves in that event. The phrase has already come up in our letter. It was there in chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Christ that brings redemption and forgiveness of sins. Paul is calling us to remember that in Jesus' death, we don't only have the way that Jewish people could have their sins forgiven, we also have the one single avenue by which the nations could now come to this God through faith in Christ. This verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, is a favourite verse for many people. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far away, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. It's a favourite verse because that, that, that description at the start captures life for so many of us. You who were once far away in career building, once far away in the busyness of life, once far away in your own family, once far away in travelling and seeing the world, once far away in addiction, once far away wherever it was. That phrase rings true for so many of us and then here's the wonderful mercy we've been brought near through the blood and free forgiveness of Christ. There may be some here today who are still wondering about that verse, wondering what it means to be brought near. There are lots and lots of ideas in this passage, but if you're still grappling with that, maybe this is just the thing for you to take home today, that Christ has come to find and rescue those who are far off, He died to forgive them and bring them near to God. And you might just spend the whole rest of the day thinking of that verse if you're still grappling with what it means to come near in Christ. There's much more of the blessing though and it's there in 14 and we're going to keep unpacking it because the other side to the blessing is not only that in Christ we come near to God but in Christ people are brought into the new community of Christians together on the same same level. 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We know all too well the hostility that can run blood deep between particular nations or cultures. It often boils over and expresses itself with awful division or wars or massacres or even atrocities. We might think of what we see in the news all the time between Jews and Muslims in the Middle East or Protestants and Catholics in Ireland or those in tribes in Africa warring and currently unable to bring together. In Bible times, the racial hatred was between the Jews and non-Jews. It was as extreme as any other division in history. One commentary I read made the point that it was actually unlawful for a Jewish person if they saw a Gentile giving birth, it was unlawful to help them because then you'd just be bringing another heathen into the world. 
The Jews had taken their privileged status as God's people right to the level of arrogance and elitism. The whole Jewish culture had become built to design to keep people out, keep them pure, keep the Gentiles out. You see it in the daily customs and rituals there of the Old Testament law. And then they added to the law. So the laws became this impenetrable maze. So an outsider had no way of working out how to become Jewish or how to step into this community. The law kept people out. Then there was the temple itself, meant to be a household of prayer for all nations. But the Jews had made that even a barrier to keep others out. They have recovered one of the inscriptions that was on one of the inner walls of the temple. A translation goes something like this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and forecourt around this sacred precinct. Whoever is caught will have himself be responsible for his consequent death. Don't come or we'll kill you. And if we kill you, it's your fault for coming in. But when Jesus died... God declared to the world, this is how you're put right with me through Christ. There's no other way. There's no rule keeping. There's no law keeping. None of that will count. And so Jesus' death abolished the law and thereby abolished the barrier that kept Jews and non-Jews separate from one another. And verse 15 puts it this way. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross in which he put to death their hostility. In Christ there is a brand new culture, a brand new race, a brand new identity, a nation and kingdom. It's marked by peace between the earthly groups because they're reconciled all to God in exactly the same way. Wherever you are from, whatever your culture, whatever your background, if you want to come to God, it's all through Christ. And as we come through the one door, we are therefore on the same level. I think the picture of the cross is a wonderful visual reminder of both elements that we're learning about here in Ephesians 2. There is, of course, the vertical element, the beam pointing straight up to God, maybe reminding us that, that that's what the cross does. It fixes that relationship with God. But there's the other beam, cutting sideways to remind us that the cross also brings humanity together for those who are in Christ. What a very simple but visual reminder of what the cross does and what we hear about in chapter 2. It's a brilliant principle that we get here in verses 17 and 18 that there is even footing for Jews and Gentiles now in God's family. The gospel brings peace to each other, those far off, Gentiles, and those near, Jews, both peace. They both have access to God through the one spirit. And so Paul can declare there the result of all of this. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and the members of God's household. Can you imagine the impact of that sentence read out in this church? as the impact of that truth just ripples through the church family gathered there at Ephesus or the house churches, wherever they are. There are no second-class citizens in the church. Foreigners once before, now citizens. Once aliens, now members of the household. 
What a brilliant principle for us to take on board here that there are no second-class citizens in this church or any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ones out the front and then the great Christians and the ordinary Christians. There are none with an inferior status. Who might we think are the first-class citizens here? Who are the insiders, the respectable ones, the connected ones, the gifted ones? Maybe you feel on the inside. Maybe you feel on the outside. We're all on the same level because we all come in through Christ. We all have equal footing. It's good to remember, isn't it, as well, um, this principle, when we come to our own conflicts, if God can bring unity between Jews and Gentiles, Imagine what he can do for your own little squabbles that you find yourself in day by day and week by week. When your relationships break down or you hurt someone or you are hurt by someone else. In those situations, there are lots of things we might need. We might need to speak honestly to someone. We may need to apologise, to find closure. There may need to be accountability, all of those things. But the most important thing that each party will need when they're both in the church is to remember that in Christ we have peace with God and that draws us together in unity. There is, however, in the last little paragraph here, 19 down to 22, chapter 2, a much bigger unity that Paul talks about. And here is a unity far more impressive than anything just about our own little patch. Paul paints the picture of a building project a building project far greater than what we're attempting over there in the hall. This is a building project that cuts through history and cuts right around the world. One of my friends at Moore College wants to look at these verses and encourage us to paint the picture of God as a CEO of an international construction company. And all around the world there are little buildings, little Christian communities unified in themselves, But God's doing an even bigger work where he takes every one of them and brings them into this almighty structure. Wherever you are in the world, all built now into this even bigger thing called the Church of Christ. This living temple, the metaphors are getting mixed here. This living temple that God lives and they're all joined into it. The common element across all of them is that each of them are built on the same foundation, the preaching of Christ. They have the same cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And so we share the common foundation, we share the common cornerstone, we share the common goal of all growing in holiness and God dwelling among us. That is the big giant unity that Christians share around the world when we're all built on the same cornerstone. Now what a transformation this is. Going from the Old Testament time period and era where God had one people chosen. He did always have intentions to flood the grace and mercy out. But this is where the transformation happens. Those completely isolated from the promises of God without hope in the world have been brought near. To stand now on equal footing in the new community of God's people. It's meant to humble you. It's meant to fill you with thanks. And for those of you who are prone here to thinking of how much you deserve to be here. It's meant to remind you that you don't deserve to be here, but God, who is rich in mercy, has brought you in in Christ. 
And for those of us who are prone to dwell on how much we don't belong in here, these verses are here to remind you of God who is rich in mercy and has brought you in through Christ. Well, that's the big transition in human history that happens through the cross of Christ. And now into chapter 3, Paul uses that phenomenon, Gentiles coming in, to describe his own job description and the own lens through which he sees all of his ministry. In these verses are verses 1 to 9 in chapter 3. Paul has a phrase that he repeats a couple of times. The phrase is, the mystery. And he says it a few times, it's there in verse 3, the mystery made known. Verse 4, the mystery of Christ. Verse 9, the administration of this mystery. The mystery that Paul is referring to is the phenomenon we've just realised that the nations can come into God's family through Christ. It's not the mystery in the sense of it's a secret or one you've got 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 to uncover and find out. It's a mystery in the sense that it was hinted at in the Old Testament, but not made clear how it would take place. And so our first Bible reading from Isaiah 56 did very clearly speak of God bringing the nations in. But no one would possibly have guessed that he would do that through sending his son who would die on the cross. That's the mystery. And it's now being revealed. Paul uses that to describe his own job description. He says, this is my job to make plain the administration of this mystery, verse 9, for which ages past was kept hidden who created, uh, hidden in God who created all things. This is my job. To participate in the mystery, to take the gospel to non-Jews. So they know who Christ is and they come into God's family as well. Paul's whole life is shaped around this mystery, this mission of bringing Gentiles to the cross therefore bringing them to peace with God and unity in the church. And so he says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel. He serves this message, he serves this mission. Take a good look there at verses 7 and 8. Because in verses 7 and 8 we have a wonderful blueprint for all sorts of ministry. It's based on Paul's life, but it's a blueprint for all genuine gospel ministry. Let's pick out some of the phrases as we go along. First, there is that phrase, I became a servant of the gospel. This is the starting point of any kind of service of God. You serve the gospel. The gospel doesn't serve you. The gospel is not one small compartment of your life. It directs your life. The overall path of everything you do is led and controlled by the gospel. And so you see it in Paul's own life, how hard he worked, he laboured, he travelled, he put himself in harm's way, he was persecuted on trial in danger everybody else. Danger again and again, because his life served the gospel. The next phrase puts Paul's hard work into perspective. He did it all by the gift of God's grace given me. His role and contribution all rests on God's grace. He can't, Paul can't look at himself and sort of puff himself up and say, ah, look what I've done for you, God. Look at my bit. All of it is based on God's grace. And so Paul nor any of us can puff ourselves up and say, God, look how useful I've become to you. It is all 
done in his grace. The final phrase in that first bit there reminds us of where the power comes from. The source of power in Paul's ministry is God. It's God's power working through the servant. And so as I come to wrap up my time here at uh, St. Andrews, there, there are lots of things that we could keep working on, lots of things I would love to turn my attention to and keep working and serving alongside you, building various things together. But then I remember this is God's work and God is at work in this church. In the last um, church family news, I put a little article together of some of my observations of God at work here in this church. God is at work bringing people who are not Christians into Christ. It is happening. He is at work on Friday afternoons in the kids and youth programs. He's at work now over at Pruwheel as the youngest hearts and minds are understanding God's word. God is at work when as a family we mourn, as a church family we mourn together and grieve, but we support one another and carry each other's burdens. God is at work as people walk past our church and see life and a community and they think, what's going on in there? And they come in for a visit. And so although my formal time here will wrap up in this role, God is at work. And that's a huge, huge encouragement to me. Let's keep tracking Paul's uh, blueprint for ministry here because in the next verse we get the attitude of ministry and it's one of humility. Here is the great Paul, the apostle. Even he says about himself, I am less than the least of all God's people. This huge church planter missionary and yet he never moves on as his position as a sinner forgiven by the blood of Jesus. The longer you go in ministry, the easier it is to think of yourself as something or a someone. The don't-you-know-who-I-am attitude, but not Paul. This humble outlook remains there all the way through everything he does. Although I'm least, less than the least of all God's people, he never moves beyond the cross. Here's the last ingredient in Paul's blueprint for ministry. It's what he says. I've come to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I wonder if we could sum up the content of ministry any better than that. It's what we're here to speak in church. The unsearchable riches of Christ to one another. It's what we speak to the world. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And I hope you know and remember that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. We'll never plumb the depths of all of his glory and majesty. It's great to remember when we're feeling a bit stale in our grasp of Christ. I've heard that story. I know this. I know that. I've learnt this. We may have forgotten that to really plumb the depths, we'll never get there. He has unsearchable riches. Jesus Christ is the most impressive human who has ever lived. And he is all that we have to offer to the world. Christ, who is God and man. He lived with love unmatched, power unparalleled wise beyond human intellect, loved and adored by crowds but never swayed by the pressure of the crowd, mocked and rejected but never lashed out, suffered, crucified, buried so sinners could go free, raised, appeared, ascended, will return as judge of all humanity. And these are just the dot points of the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
the more you grasp who he is, the more it propels him to make him your message. Paul did not go around preaching a message of human fulfilment or a project of world peace. He preached the riches of Christ. And we too have no other message to bring to the world. I found these two sentences here, verses 7 and 8, the ones up on the screen. I found them. um, There's a great deal in here for us to to consider as a church. As we think about who we are and, and the way we will conduct and carry on our ministry. It's a blueprint of ministry that I hope I've been able to model, though I know I've not done that perfectly by any stretch. It's a blueprint of ministry that I pray as a church we will carry on for years and decades to come. As we serve the gospel, it sets our agenda. We work by God's grace, through his power, remaining ever humble, declaring the unsearchable riches of Christ to a lost and dark world. There's one last little idea we need to to cover. It's there in verses 10 to 13. But I'm just going to zoom in on verse 10. This is the last aspect of God's grand plan of uniting Jews and Gentiles together in the church. Verse 10, his intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The work that God does on this earthly world has reverberations into the unseen spiritual world. This is the spiritual world of angels and demons and spiritual forces and powers. It's the spiritual world that's cropped up a couple of times in the letter already. Chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 1 verse 3, we've been blessed where? In the heavenly realms. Chapter 1 verse 20, All things in the heavenly realms and on earth are under Christ. 1 verse 20, Christ has been raised and you and I in Christ are seated where? In the heavenly realms. We learn in chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities and against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of of evil in the heavenly realms. What God does in this world in Christ sends shockwaves through the unseen spiritual world as well. And here's the great mystery, that as the, the church represents Jews and Gentiles coming together in unity, the unseen spirit world sees that. And what do they learn? They learn the manifold wisdom of God. The church is like an object lesson. It's like a visual representation. It's like a flashing beacon beyond this world to the unseen world. And God is declaring even out there through what happens in here, his unsearchable power and love and wisdom in bringing people far off together. Did you know that your relationships with one another, when they are based on unity found in the cross, are a signpost revealing God's wisdom? That's why the local church is more glorious and powerful than you can imagine. We may seem weak, we may seem limited in our reach, but we are God's megaphone for the wisdom into the spiritual realm. And it's a great witness to the world too when we dwell in unity. You see, the world wants to know if Christianity works. 
And so if our own community is marked by the same divisions and bickering and cliques and circles and power games and exclusions as you would have out there in the local soccer club or or corporate boardroom, then the world will just keep walking. Why would they come in? Yet if we're transformed together, filled with the one spirit, those far off and those who near reconcile to God in each other, then the world might just stop and see the powerful difference the unsearchable riches of Christ makes. Well, what better passage to wrap up my time serving you in this way? There's the call for those who are far off, and you know, perhaps, if that is you, the call is to come near to God through Christ. There's the call to follow Paul's blueprint and to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ with humility by God's grace, relying on God's power. And there's the call for all of us to live in unity as a powerful visual aid to the heavenly realms and the watching world around. So let's live as those brought together by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you have intervened into our lives and that in Christ you've made it possible for all who are far off to come. And so help us to come and help us collectively as a church to commit to ministry your way, serving the gospel, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the world around and bring us that unity that is attractive to the world and and powerful to the unseen forces. All this we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Seated in the heavenly realms.